Hi, everyone. I'd like to welcome you to episode four of ONP Research Insights, presented by the American Academy of Orthodox and Prosthetists. I'm Dr. Steve Gard, Editor-in-Chief for the Journal of Prosthetics and Orthotics. My guests today are Dr. Stefania Fatone and Dr. Christy Bjornsson. Stefania Fatone, PhD, BPO with honors, joined the University of Washington in January as Professor and Associate Chair in the Department of Rehabilitation Medicine and Program Director of the Division of Prosthetics and Orthotics. Prior to that, Dr. Fatone was a faculty member in the Northwestern University Prosthetics Orthotics Center, Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation for two decades, where she was a colleague of mine. Dr. Fatone has over 20 years of experience conducting prosthetics and orthotics research and currently leads multiple research projects funded by federal agencies and professional organizations. Her research includes a broad range of experimental, qualitative, and review studies in areas such as transfemoral prosthetic socket biomechanics and design, orthotic management of upper motor neuron lesions, and partial foot amputation. She has published more than 80 journal articles, book chapters, editorials, commentaries, and evidence notes, and presents regularly at conferences nationally and internationally. Dr. Fatone is an honorary member of the American Academy of Orthodox and Prosthetists and a recipient of the Academy's Distinguished Research Award. She is the co-developer of the NU-Flexive and NU-Flexis socket techniques and previously served as co-editor-in-chief of Prosthetics and Orthotics International. Christy Bjornsson, PT, PhD, MS, is a professor of developmental medicine, pediatrics at the University of Washington and an adjunct research professor of rehabilitation medicine at the Seattle Children's Hospital Research Institute. Dr. Bjornsson is a pediatric physical therapist with over 40 years of clinical experience. She completed her physical therapy degree at the University of Minnesota, and she has a master's in rehabilitation science and a PhD in nursing science from the University of Washington, Seattle. Her doctoral work was the first to document community-based ambulatory activity via wearable sensors in adolescents with cerebral palsy, as well as self-reported quality of life. Dr. Bjornsson's doctoral work focused on the assessment of walking activity, health, and quality of life in ambulatory children with cerebral palsy and normative ambulatory data for the Stepwatch Ankle Worn Accelerometer. Ongoing current NIH-funded research includes a study of power training combining the total gym and treadmills, a home-based treadmill training study, and a project examining the ankle-foot orthosis-footwear combination orthotic management approach for ambulatory children with cerebral palsy. Dr. Bjornsson has a small private practice focusing on orthotics management across the lifespan. Today, we're going to be discussing a recent article that Stephen Christie published in JPO entitled Comparison of Sagittal Plane Stiffness of Non-Articulated Pediatric Ankle Foot Orthoses Designed to be Rigid. Welcome to the podcast, Stephen Christie. Thank you so much. Thanks, Steve. I'm happy to be here. Well, I'm excited to have you here. And uh, one of the things that really jumps out at me about your, your article concerns use of this term rigid. I'm an engineer by training. I realize Steph is trained as a certified prosthetist orthodist, and Christy, you're a therapist. I'm, and I'm wondering if this term rigid has kind of a different connotation for all of us. 
But I wonder if you could comment on this term rigid. What does this mean in terms of clinical practice? So a goal of an orthosis in this particular patient population when we make it non-articulated is that we're usually trying to immobilize or um, yeah, immobilize and limit range of motion in a particular joint. And so to do that, we try to design devices that are not, that won't allow movement. And so we we, we hope that that device is as rigid as it needs to be to do that. Unfortunately, of course, we know that uh, the devices are not truly rigid. They're not truly immobile. And part of that comes from the device designs themselves. It's very difficult to create a device that is totally rigid, um, especially under the loads that are experienced during various activities. Uh, it's also very difficult because we're interfacing with a, an object, <laughs> the human body, that's squishy. And so when we couple even if the device was truly rigid, when we couple it to the human body um, and we place it inside a shoe, as an example, there's all sorts of opportunities for relative movement. So even if the device was absolutely immobile um, and didn't deflect under load, we would still have an issue with whether or not the movement in the system is minimized. Uh, Steph, I would totally agree with um, your um, description of our question and our, our clinical problem. And, and to put it into even more clinical in the trenches terminology, my experience has been that with what we call a rigid or solid ankle AFO in say a young toddler that we put into a shoe that is again, relatively stiff. I see a treatment effect at um, mid stance um, during visual gait analysis. And as the child grows, uh, we see a change because the style of the shoe changes, the child's body mass changes and height changes. And um, I'm always questioning whether really we're getting the treatment effect. And one of the parts of the puzzle, of course, is, is the, the device really stiff or rigid. And I think therapists, physical therapists particularly, would probably use the term stiffness versus rigidity uh, since we're not engineers. Uh, but we, I see as the children get larger, we have less and less uh, treatment effect in controlling the knee kinematics, particularly during stance phase. So um, this really rings home, this work and this uh, question really rings home to what I've seen clinically as a dilemma as we treat kids as they're still growing in pediatric practice. Well, I think as you both kind of talk about this concept of rigidity for AFOs, I, I think we're going to be in general agreement on what we mean, that we're talking about making a device that's immovable. But I guess the question is, and what we're going to get into in the discussion is, how much stiffness or what level of stiffness is acceptable? in these devices. So specifically uh, for your study, what is the purpose of this study that you all conducted here? So um, the goal of the study was to assess the stiffness of uh, selection of ankle foot orthoses that are intended for use uh, as part of the ankle foot orthosis footwear combination algorithm. And it, this was a, a side project that stemmed from the fact that uh, Christy was leading a clinical trial where we were trying to use this particular orthotic approach in children with cerebral palsy. And as a question that came up was, you know, are we making devices that uh, live up to <laughs> the intent of the algorithm? You know, do they do that? Are they sufficiently stiff? And 
we didn't know the answer to that question. And, and as it turns out, there's really no gold standard for whether devices are sufficiently stiff. But with respect to this particular approach, um, the, the gold standard we had to fall back on was, well, do, how do they compare to the devices that the developer of the, of the approach uh, considers suitable? Um, so that was, that was the genesis of this project. It was, it was to try and sort of better understand if the way we were implementing the intervention matched the way the developer would like it to be implemented. Um, and that's really as, as, as much of a gold standard as we had um, because we don't actually have an answer to the question of what is sufficiently stiff. Um, so we kind of fall back on this idea of a comparative analysis, right? If, if one person's uh, creating these devices and they're considered the best proponent of that approach, how well do we measure up to that? How well do our devices that we make here on, in the US measure up to that standard? Yes, exactly. As Steph has articulated it well again, um, you know, we hope to implement um, in our clinical trial the protocol that was developed um, in the UK with devices that were fabricated in the UK. And there's different designs, different fabrication um, and trim lines. And, and we really wanted to make sure that we were um, for internal validity of the um, clinical protocol that we were testing compared to a traditional solid ankle APO. That was really a question that came up as we started implementing the clinical trial. So really, just to summarize here, what you were doing in this particular study was to determine the stiffness of a variety of AFOs that were fan manufactured in both the U.S. and the U.K. that were going to be used in this clinical trial, uh, just to kind of get a sense of what the stiffness of these devices are. That's right, Steve. And so we set about uh, pulling together a group of people who could conduct stiffness testing of uh, ankle foot orthoses. And we collected a sample of devices from Elaine Owen that she had used in her clinical practice, uh, managing children with cerebral palsy and other uh, uh, challenges, uh, ambulatory challenges. And we collected a sample of devices that had been made um, for our study. And so it was a convenient sample of devices. And, but we tried to create, collect devices that uh, spanned the different designs that are uh, included in the algorithm that Elaine developed for the ankle foot orthosis footwear combination approach. So in that algorithm, there are three device designs cate categorically, so A, B, and C. And so we tried to collect uh, devices that spanned that, that spectrum. We also tried to match the devices that were collected from the US in terms of the height of the AFO to the devices that were collected from the UK on the assumption that that would uh, mean that the devices were roughly comparable in terms of the, the child that they'd been made for. That assumption, you know, is a little fraught, but it was one attempt we made to try and make sure the devices were similar height so that the lever arm was somewhat comparable when we were measuring stiffness. So in terms of the work on this project, did you have certain expectations in terms of the outcomes uh, in doing the stiffness testing of these different AFOs? So we were certainly hoping that the devices that we were making for implementation in our clinical trial were going to be of comparable stiffness to the devices that uh, Elaine Owen, as the developer of the algorithm that we were using, um, that she considers 
uh, suitable for use in her clinical practice. Uh, so we were hoping that they would be comparable. We didn't know though. Um, one of the reasons that uh, Elaine was interested in uh, joining us and collaborating with us on this project is because um, she had never had uh, the stiffness of her AFOs tested mechanically. And so we didn't have a number to shoot for or to compare to. And so this, this opportunity to collaborate with us on this project gave us the opportunity to benchmark what the stiffness of the AFOs she thinks is acceptable in her clinical practice, um, what that looked like and put a number to that and then have a look at what else, how else compared the ones that we were making for our study. I was just going to say that I think it also adds one of the things we wanted to make sure <clears throat> was the internal validity within the study design. We wanted to make sure that we in the United States were implementing um, the study in consistent with what um, is published as the algorithm, the AFOFC algorithm. So it was also part of um, documentation that um, we, we were uh, implementing a stiff or a rigid orthotic as part of the protocol. Excellent point. Thanks for bringing that up, Christy. Um, now, it's important to note in your study, you didn't actually test AFOs on human subjects. But would you please explain how did you go about collecting data on the stiffness of these AFOs? Yep. So we were interested in characterizing the devices mechanically. Um, so looking at the their stiffness of the device uh, as a unique contributor to the intervention, which of course is more holistic in terms of the footwear that against the device gets combined with and how it fits the child. So the, this, the stiffness doesn't really tell you about the ultimate effectiveness of the device. It's just one component, one characteristic that goes into the uh, intervention, um, but it's an important one. And so we assess the mechanical stiffness of each of the AFOs that we collected uh, using a, um, system that uh, Fan Gao has developed. So this is a motorized uh, benchtop apparatus uh, that you can put an AFO into and that you can apply a um, torque at the ankle and that you can cyclically load and unload the foot component of the AFO to assess how much deflection um, it undergoes. And in terms of the, uh, the findings or Actually, the, the primary outcomes you all were looking at were stiffness, of course, and range of motion at the ankle, which seem like are of uh, primary concern to practitioners when fitting these devices. So what were your primary findings uh, whenever you conducted these experiments? Yep. So you're right. We characterized, we measured stiffness of the devices, but we then provided uh, a measure of the deflection under load as well, because ultimately, clinically, the stiffness is a mechanical characteristic, but the deflection that occurs is kind of the clinical takeaway. And what we want to know is how little movement could the devices potentially uh, allow a child, a child when they're walking on these um, in, in this intervention. So. Uh, characterizing the deflection was sort of the, the clinical, clinically important piece of the, the information. And so we, we make these devices with the intent that we're limiting as much range of motion at the ankle as possible. And so our devices uh, allowed this, the, the, the sample of devices that we tested had a range of deflection at the ankle between two and six degrees. 
And obviously, one of the challenges is we don't really have a good threshold for how little deflection is, is uh, you know, is important to build into these devices uh, to ensure that the intervention is effective when it's actually worn on a, on a person. And so we suspect that, that as little as possible is the goal, but we know that it's also really, really difficult to build devices that are fully rigid. Um, and so, you know, we were reasonably pleased that we were getting um, very small magnitudes of deflection under load. Um, I would say that maybe, you know, close to six degrees is probably too much deflection and we need the, those devices would need to try and um, we need to try and figure out what it is about the design of those devices that perhaps uh, could be adjusted so that we can get down closer to that two and three degree um, threshold that seems to be the best that we've been able to uh, establish so far. Uh, with the devices that we've tested. So, you know, six degrees of movement at the ankle, it, ch it changes the moment arm acting at the knee a lot. So if you're trying to, you know, control what's happening at the knee and at the hip, um, we need as little movement at the ankle as possible to minimise those moment arms at the knee and the hip. So that's kind of a bit of a frame of reference, but no clear threshold as to how much deflection is, is sufficient or how little deflection is optimal. And you touched upon a couple of concepts that I really find intriguing. The first is um, that a few degrees make a lot of difference that you said you saw from anywhere from two to three up to six degrees range of motion. But those few degrees could have implications, particularly on uh, the knee itself. But additionally, that there is no threshold here in determining, you know, what makes a what is can be considered a rigid AFO versus one that is, I don't know, semi-rigid, I guess, for back of, lack of a better term here. Yeah, I, so we, we use these devices in practice, and Christy will speak to this probably more, more, for, more effectively than I can, but, I mean, we're using, we're, we're trying to immobilise the ankle as a method of controlling the ground reaction force vector position with respect to the knee and the hip to encourage better moments acting at the knee and the hip. So in children with cerebral palsy, as an example, um, their gait is uh, not uh, as it should be. So they either tend to present with sort of a crouch uh, position at the knee or excessive hyperextension or extension at the knee. And we're trying to create, uh, we're trying to use the, manipulate the force vector to ha have a particular moment, uh, restore a more normal moment at the knee and the hip. And so small um, movement at the ankle or the, our ability, how well we can control movement of the ankle and the position of the vector at the foot, um, even small amounts of movement at the ankle will create large moment arms at the knee and the hip. So we try to minimise movement as much as possible, but, but we're also conscious that even if, if we put a device that was totally rigid on the ankle, we're still interacting with a system that's not rigid, right? That is soft tissue um, that will create relative movement of the device with respect to the body. There's a shoe that is may or may not be laced up tight enough against the foot. And so there, even if the device itself was fully able to not deflect under load, 
It doesn't mean that ultimately when we put it on the child, we don't lose some control with these other factors that affect the intervention as well. And we see this a lot with footwear, um, uh, wear and tear on the footwear. So we create footwear that's very stiff and we put, you know, soles and rockers on them and then all of a sudden the child goes out and the, 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 the rocker gets worn away and we lose control at the knee and the hip. So it's the same idea with the deflection at the ankle, that the more deflection there is, the harder it is to get the control that you want proximally. I agree with everything that Steph just said, particularly about the shoe wear. Um, one of my mentors said, um, clinically, um, one of the first things I parents I ask of them when they describe that the device in the shoes are not working as well as they did previously after say three or four months of wear is I, I send me a picture of the bottom of their shoes and we'll look at the wear pattern it's, and the mantra is that the shoes never lie because the shoes really tell us what's happening when the foot hits the ground right. The other observation I've had clinically is we will put a device on a child within the AFOFC algorithm on a clinical basis. And we make the assumption it's rigid or it's stiff um, with the hope. And we think we see at the initial fitting and the follow-up checks that we're getting an effect at the knee and the hip, similar to what Steph just described. And we see maybe a more optimization of the stance phase and terminal extension. But one of the things we see after three or four months of wear with the body mass and the lacing of the shoes and the squishy body part within the devices, we actually see deformation of the device. We see it cracking. We see uh, we see obviously where it's been bending at the ankle, even though it is quote unquote a solid ankle AFO or a rigid ankle AFO. So again, that's another from the trenchers observation that sort of drove um, the reason why we wanted to take a look at this question and to take a look at it in a very focused mechanical perspective. Very interesting. Thank you for that additional insight, Christy. Um, now, something about your results that really jumped out at me, and again, I, I, maybe this is the engineer coming out in me, but I, I noticed that the AFO that was uh, fabricated with the thickest material, all of your uh, AFOs were fabricated with polypropylene, but you've, the one that was fabricated with the thickest uh, material, five millimeters, actually had the lowest stiffness. It deflected the most. Can you comment on that? So uh, it, it seems counterintuitive. I totally agree, Steve, that uh, making a device out of the thickest polypropylene ends up being the least stiff. Um, so I think this speaks a lot to the multifactorial nature of AFO design. And also the fact that while you may select a five millimeter polypropylene to begin the process of making an AFO, when you uh, heat that polymer sheet up and then drape mold it over a cast, you may not end up with a uniform five millimeter thickness all over and all through the AFO. So fabrication processes influence the ultimate finished thickness of the device, even if you start with a five millimeter polypropylene. Um, and so one of the challenges is that, uh, one, the material may not be as thick uniformly as you think it is based on what you started with. Um, but the second issue is that there's other design characteristics that can then couple or uh, influence the, the design's overall stiffness of the AFO. And that has to do with the trim lines, um, the, so the overall geometry of the device. It has to do with whether or not there are additional reinforcements added around the ankle 
um, and uh, and also the the, the general uh, position of trim lines with respect to uh, the axis of rotation of the joint. So all of those factors will affect the the sort of final stiffness and the material property. The material thickness is really only one element, and so. Uh, it seems counterintuitive on the surface and then you start to think about all these other things that creep into the design and you realise that it's really a multifactorial um, question. And so one of the challenges of doing this type of research, um, the way that we did it, where we just sort of sampled devices that had been intended for clinical use, is that we didn't control any of those variables in a systematic way. And so one of the uh, points we make about future research is that if we really want to understand the contribution of all these different design elements to the stiffness of a device, we need to systematically and independently vary them and, and test and test their effect on stiffness to get a better handle on the relative contribution that they make to the overall stiffness characteristics of the device. Which I thought was a very good recommendation. And I know, Steph, that you've actually been involved in similar studies, systematic studies of prosthetics and orthotic technologies in the past, um, where you systematically vary different aspects of the design to determine their overall effect on, um, on function, essentially. So, yeah, I mean, it's ultimately it's the only way that we can get a handle on the the differing contribution of what is you know we create a system or a device that has lots of different characteristics and we need to figure out the relative contribution of any one piece of that design to the overall system function um, or device function so teasing that out becomes quite a torturous and slow process of one at a time <laughs> one element at a time so I'm just curious, were there any unanticipated surprises in your findings? And if so, can you explain them? Um, I don't know that we had uh, unanticipated surprises. Um, I guess one thing that jumped out at me uh, in uh, having longer conversations uh, with uh, Elaine about what, what their approach is in the UK versus what our approach is in the US. Um, one thing that jumped out at me was the, the way that uh, the height of the AFO is determined, because I think that was a little bit unique. Um, I don't know, I can't say it was as something that is an approach maybe that the whole UK takes, but certainly it's, it's the way that Elaine has developed her approach to managing children with orthoses. And in her practice, she tends to leave the orthoses quite high in terms of total height so that the proximal trim line actually is above the fibular head. Whereas in sort of uh, American textbook practice, we would go below the fibular head uh, to uh, make sure that the proximal trim line doesn't impinge on the back of the knee when the knee flexes. And so that was for me, I guess, a surprising little take home and a, and a bit of a wrinkle that we weren't anticipating when we sort of decided we were going to use AFOs of the same height and then realise that we don't actually determine height in the same way. So Elaine's AFOs being taller probably were fitting a child that was slightly shorter than our AFOs because our AFOs were the height was determined differently. So that was a bit of a wrinkle that I wouldn't have anticipated and and uh, and didn't really sort of think about. Uh, didn't yeah didn't anticipate and therefore didn't build into the way that we sampled the AFOs you know, in terms of picking AFOs that were similar heights as, as a guide, we might have changed our mind if we had realised that we were doing heights differently. 
Yeah, I would agree as well. I think um, the way our practice in the United States is we definitely will go up to the fibular head in the height. That's at least we hope. And then we hope that it's tolerated. And the younger the child and the more floor skills and time the child has getting up and down from the floor, which a toddler and a preschooler would be doing versus a school age child, um, we see less tolerance and we see challenges with discomfort behind the knees. So um, I would say the standard of practice, at least in our region of the United States, in my experience with my colleagues and my research therapists or orthotists, is that we definitely have um, devices that are not as tall as Elaine's practice in the UK. That's good to know. And, it, and I would kind of uh, uh, consider that to be some of the clinical takeaways from this study. Any other kind of clinical application uh, that orthotists uh, or therapists can keep in mind coming out of this study? Um, I'll jump in first from a therapist's perspective, because I, one, I'm not an engineer, nor am I an orthotist, but I have the luxury of practicing with an orthotist, and which has taught me a lot. And um, I think the biggest thing that comes out of this, the take-home pearl for me, is that to really think about how we uh, design and fabricate um, devices that we're making the assumption that they're rigid or they're stiff at the ankle relative to the size of the child and then also relative to the child tolerating them for the dosing we hope to get. So if we are hoping to have a child wearing them most of their waking hours um, and or maybe less, maybe only five to six hours a day or whatever, um, can we do something with the design? Is it additional struts or is it a thicker uh, material, or how can we make sure that um, just the, at the ankle that is stiff enough? But then we also the other factors of we and we didn't address this in this project. We didn't address the stiffness at the metatarsal phalangeal joint, at the design, and the cut lines. Those are all things that um, uh, I think about with the orthotist that I practice with more now. That would be one of the big take homes from a clinical in the trenches perspective for me. Yeah, I would echo that we do is a limitation to our study, and that is that we only looked at sagittal plane motion at the ankle, sagittal plane stiffness at the ankle, and we didn't uh, assess stiffness of the AFO in other planes or at the metatarsal phalangeal joints, and those are also important characteristics in terms of the overall effectiveness of the device um, that would have to be assessed <laughs> with a slightly different instrumentation because our, our system wasn't uh, wasn't designed to do anything in other planes, but um, I know there's a lot of interest in mechanical testing of devices and that uh, other uh, groups of researchers are always looking at developing better testing systems, um, setups, so that we can take into account some of these other characteristics in terms of the mechanical properties of the device. And thank you for mentioning those limitations. That's important to bring out and for listeners to understand. I think we've had some excellent discussion here today. Uh, before I conclude, I just wanted to ask, I like to impress upon the listeners that studies like this uh, don't typically occur without research funding. So is there any funding that you would like to uh, acknowledge for this study? Oh, that's a great question. And um, I like to say that this was uh, funded within the, um, the NIH funding for the R21 that supported the clinical trial, where we took a look at biomechanics balance and patient reported outcomes comparing traditional solid ankle AFOs versus the AFOFC approach. Um, and just to be clear, the solid ankle AFO was a device 
that was casted at neutral and there were no shoe modifications. Um, and both groups wore the same shoes and the children with the AFOFC approach had appropriate shoe modifications per the AF AFOFC algorithm. But yes, I, I wanna acknowledge that it is our tax dollars hopefully being well used. Absolutely. So we've come to the end of our podcast and I'd like to thank Drs. Fatone and Bjornsson for sharing their insights and discussing the research with us today. So thank you both for your, your insights here. I'd like to remind everyone that if you would like additional information on their project, you can access the full article about this study in the Journal of Prosthetics and Orthotics. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of OMP Research Insights presented by the American Academy of Orthodox and Prosthetists. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Please plan to join us again next month for the Academy's OMP Research Insights podcast, when we'll be hosting another author and discussing their recent JPO article. Thanks. <laughs>